games are meant to be fun. You know, they're meant you want if you're designing games, you want your players to have fun and be entertained. That is the whole purpose of games. If they're not having fun, why would they play? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and just because you're making your games fun and for entertainment doesn't mean you can't still have critical analysis of them, right? There's always ways to improve. No one has designed the perfect game. Welcome to Replay, the show that invites you to join us at the game table. I'm your host, Clara Mount. On Replay, we're building a more inclusive community by creating a space for underrepresented gamers and their allies to share their voice. We'll tell stories about our experiences and provide new perspectives that challenge our community to think differently about who we are and what we do. Replay is a Victor Media Group original. You can find episodes of this and all other Victor Media Group shows on our website at victormediagroup.co. And if you like what you're hearing, subscribe and connect with us on your favorite social media platform. Today on Replay, we get to talk to Shannon McDowell, who is a board game and puzzle designer, as well as an escape room researcher. Um, She's definitely got some neat publications under her belt on her research into cultural bias in escape rooms in particular. Those are awesome. I I had to go read them myself. I encourage you to go check them out through her website, um, shannonmcdowell.ca. And I also have to shout this out. Um, Shannon was a member of the design team for the 2019 Red Bull Escape Room World Championship, which just sounds so impressive to me Um, as an escape room lover. I am really excited that I finally get to have an escape room expert on the show. Welcome to Replay, Shannon. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me. All right. So um, in a little bit, we're going to talk about uh, more about cultural bias in puzzle design and kind of get into to the meat of that topic. But my first segment is always just about games and why we love them. So Shannon, what's the number one reason that people should care about games? Well, I just think games are such a versatile, like social and educational activity. You know, there's so many reasons why you can play games, but The big one is play and connecting with other people. And, you know, if you think about it, our very first learning experiences were all through play and games as kids. And I think that continues as an adult. And there's so many types of games out there. Like anyone who says they don't like games, well, I would call them a liar because (laughs) at the very least you watch sports or you might play cards with friends or maybe you play Candyland with your kids. You know, there are tons of games out there and tons of types of games. And honestly, when you think about it for social activities, um, games are relatively inexpensive for a social activity. You know, one person can spend 20 or $30 at Walmart and get a game and a family can enjoy that for years and years. Like how many people still own a broken down Monopoly that your family's (laughs) been playing for 30 years, right? (laughs) Oh gosh, so true. And then they just keep coming out with new Monopoly versions, so you just have to get all of them, right? It's like exactly got to collect them all. No, <laughs> um, no, it's 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 cool that you called back to like learning through play as kids because like how many times? I mean, 
if you've been babysitting or something and there's like a toddler and they just throw the food on the ground, like I don't have kids of my own, so I have to talk about babysitting, but you know, they, they pick the food up on their tray and then they throw it on the ground and then they watch mom or dad pick it back up and put it back on their tray and they just do it again. That's that, that kind of repetition play, like they're, that's, mm -hmm. they're explore exploring and experimenting. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. It's so, mm -hmm. so true. Yeah, play and games are just a really, really good way to connect with different people and to like learn about different experiences and stories and things that you might not have thought of yourself. For sure, for sure. So Shannon, how did you first get into games or to gaming? Okay, so if we're like, that goes back really far because <laughs> I've played games my entire life. We always had a board game cupboard and you know, as kids had a lot of like Ravensburger games and you know, those types monopoly, like you mm -hmm. said, um, I'm from Ontario, Canada. So, uh, crib or, uh, well, we played cribbage too, but crokinole is a big game here. Hmm. So, and has been for years. It's actually crokinole. I'm not, are you familiar with that? No, I've never heard of so it. It's a dexterity game that is basically you flick discs on a really big wooden circular wooden board. And so it's kind of like um, like a 360 uh, curling, um, if huh. you're familiar with curling. So it's a tabletop version of curling, kind of. But it was uh, originally created by um, Mennonites in Ontario, and they made the game boards out of wood. So I literally am sitting probably six feet away from one of those game boards that, you know, everyone in my family got in the early 80s. So... <laughs> It's, I actually, so cool. I actually have two crokinole boards in my house right now. So, wow. but yeah, like I grew up playing that and it wasn't until it's, it's been within the last 10 years, I guess, that it has gone kind of international. And I know that there were, um, crokinole tournaments in board game cafes in New York and stuff like that. Like just, wow. it was mind boggling to me that like the world had never heard of crokinole before because I've been playing it for, you know, almost 40 years. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so my entire life I've played games. Wow. Um, so what what kind of games are your favorites now? Uh, so I assume that you play a lot of different things. <laughs> but like, what's your yes, favorite? Yes. Like your bread and butter? Puzzle games, always. Um, <laughs> games that are really puzzly and like think um, that you have to like really think and consider what you're going to do and like lay out your own tableau. So I like. You know, oh my gosh, I'm looking over at my board game shelf and I have like Sagrada and Calico and Splendor and, you know, Takenoko and like lots of puzzly thinking yeah. games that are fun and colorful usually. I like, you know, like Red 7 and and then of course Escape Room games. I play a lot of Escape Room games. <laughs> is that is that why you got into designing puzzles or like... Did you love puzzles because you designed them? What chicken or the egg? What happened? <laughs> um, so puzzles again, I go way back. I remember when I was, I think around, I was like five or six and we did a road trip from Ontario down to South Carolina. And so with two young children, you can imagine my parents had to drive like that's a long drive. It <laughs> yeah. took a couple days. So, um, we had packages of toys and games that you know we got to play with in the car and my mom gave me puzzles so there were a whole bunch of different types of puzzles suitable for kids and so i still full-on remember that and i have like 
puzzle books from when I was a child. There's a book called Animalia that you can still get. And it's a really cute little puzzle book that I played when I was probably six or seven. And you have to oh. find animals in a picture and then fit them in around a border. And then I know there's a way to get a secret message. It's been a long time since I played it. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> but yeah, so like I have had puzzle books as well and played puzzles for ages. We always did the puzzles in the newspaper, you know, all of mm -hmm. the cryptograms and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Did those with and my then, mom all the time, too. <laughs> Yeah, and then I I was overseas for a while and went in like early uh, 2010s. Mm -hmm. And when I came back, my sister was like, oh my God, Shannon, have you heard of this thing called escape rooms? They're popping up all over the place. I was like, no, what's that? And and that brought me right back to, you know, escape rooms like the text adventure puzzle games of mm -hmm. the 80s and 90s and yeah. like all of those, you know, I also played like Myst and Riven and like all the text adventure games. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's all puzzle games forever. And I also, <laughs> I, I started designing puzzles as a kid just for fun. Cause of course you play them and then you're like, oh, here are parents, you know, solve this puzzle that I designed and they were terrible, of course. Oh gosh, I remember making, I, I was really into the idea of like maps and leaving clues and stuff like that as a kid. Like I got really into that and I would make my brother and my parents do stupid things with me for that too. And yes. I was like, I'm so glad they indulged me. That's awesome. Exactly. But yeah, like with escape rooms becoming popular in like 2013, 2014, that was amazing. And then I started playing those and then really like, that type of puzzle is so different because you're playing it in real life, right? These aren't just things you're writing on paper or typing into the computer. They're things you're actually handling and putting somewhere and then something magical happens. And so that was fantastic. That was yes. like really hooked me as an adult. Oh man. Yeah. I, I definitely had a similar experience when I did my first escape room. Like I didn't have a concept of what it would feel like to do it, but it is, it's a 3D puzzle in like this crazy way. It's like, I mean, people talk about video games being immersive and escape room is just an immersive puzzle. Like that's- Oh, definitely, yes. I mean, incredible. All right, um, okay. So my favorite thing that I always love to ask people, um, can you tell me about a gaming experience that was really significant to you and why it mattered? Okay, well, as far as like significant, I don't know, it's design wise. Um, so during the lockdown at the start of the pandemic, mm -hmm. um, I ended up on a team of escape room enthusiasts from, I think we crossed like five different time zones. Wow. Um, and none of us have ever played together in person, but we knew each other. We knew we liked escape rooms and we started playing games online and a bunch of games started popping up um, online, which are actual, you know, physical escape rooms, but usually someone has a GoPro and they're taking you lead an avatar through these games and they move things for you. And there, there started to be some really, really cool, innovative, games out there and so there's two in particular that like blew my mind yeah. and were so amazing and i'm not going to give spoilers but <laughs> i will tell you what games they are because they were phenomenal 
And so the one is by Scrap, which is a company out of Japan. Mm-hmm. And so they had a game called Escape from the Science Lab of Shifting Rules. So yes, I love that name already. If anyone could see my face right, right. now, I'm just like, <laughs> ah! <laughs> well, it just reminds me of like an anime name or something, yes, right? And 100%. That's, that is how this game felt. They did some really neat things. It involved a lot of thinking outside the box. And um, the other game is by Ohm Escape, is the company there in uh, San Francisco, I think, this game. Um, and it's called Pursuit of the Assassin Artist. And in this game, you are actually uh, directing an avatar and he's, you know, asking you for help to do this thing to catch the assassin artist. And there again, there were some really cool things in this game. It made it feel like playing a video game. And there were a lot of neat interactions because you had to give you had to feed him lines to talk to the assassin to get into his house and stuff like this. And both of these games had some really interesting interactions with the actors, with the set pieces, with the actual players, Mm -hmm. and really outside the box. And both of them on the final puzzle had me going, like yelling into the microphone to my teammates, there's no way that's the answer. There's no way they're going to make us do this. And then we're like, okay, well, let's just try it. And it was the answer both times. Oh my god. This crazy out of the box doesn't make any sense, but it does within the game world. And -hmm. just do it and go for it. And they were both really, really fun. That's amazing. What um I mean, what do you feel like you took away from those from doing those puzzles or doing those escape rooms? Well, it just escape rooms are so new as a form of entertainment. They've been around like barely 10 years. Yeah. And it's it just went to show that like no we haven't seen everything that is possible from them yet there's Mm -hmm. still so much more to explore and so many more interesting interactions that players can experience and there's so much creativity too in the escape room industry so that it just really inspired me to do some really neat original stuff in my own games yeah oh man that's amazing that's amazing. Speaking of your own games, I saw that you have some of your own puzzles on your website, and uh, I was talking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was talking to one of my executive. Like, no answers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I started to try one, and I was like, "This is too hard. I can't do this." <laughs> but like, I was talking to one of my executive producers, JB. He's a huge escape room aficionado, and he was looking at your site, and he was like, "Can we do some of these puzzles together?" So we might be doing some of your puzzles together <laughs> later. I'm just saying. <laughs> oh gosh, uh, <laughs> well, most of those are from a game that. That never actually got published that never is going to get published it was just something fun I was doing and they are some of the puzzles on there are very very hard because it was supposed to be like puzzle hunt style puzzles Ooh. and puzzle hunt puzzles um, if you've ever played a puzzle hunt they are for top tier puzzlers like let me tell you I don't play them often because it's frustrating and crazy and these puzzles (laughs) require you to do deep dives on the internet and sometimes no photo editing and audio editing and like they're crazy, crazy. Like outside knowledge type of stuff? Every single puzzle requires outside knowledge (laughs) in a puzzle hunt. So generally. So yeah, they are um, 
that's that was the style it was kind of my practicing to see if i could do that style of puzzle and my puzzles are still easier than most puzzle hunts but (laughs) that's why they're difficult (laughs) well all right i feel less bad now i don't even remember which one i started to try it i was just like i can't do this alone i need help so (laughs) that's awesome all right well shannon um this has already been great. I'm really enjoying getting to talk to you. Uh, we are going to take a super quick break. And then when we get back, I want to, like I said, dive deep into talking about cultural bias in puzzles and escape rooms. And it's, it's just going to be a great time. Hey, friends. Have you always wanted to be a corporate sellout? Have I got the opportunity for you? Now you can buy my shirt, wear it to Friday Night Magic or your local Smash tournament, and dunk on everyone you know about how your podcasts are better than theirs. If you want to support my show, head over to bubblegumbitchcraft.etsy.com and load up that cart. Again, that's bubblegumbitchcraft.etsy.com so you can cover your shit in replay stickers and whatever else I come up with. (laughs) And hey, thanks for playing. Hey, podcasters and content creators, question for you. Are you reaching as many people as you want to? You invest time and money to produce the highest quality content you possibly can. But by creating content in only one language, you limit your reach to only the audiences who know that language. I want to introduce you to Victor Voice, a tool that can help you reach a bigger audience by creating audio in multiple languages. Victor Voice is a new subscription software that lets you transcribe, translate, and voice audio in multiple languages. It's easy to use, fast, and accurate. Go to www.victorvoice.co to sign up for your free trial today. No credit card required. That's victorvoice.co. Welcome back to Replay. We are here uh, with Shannon McDowell, board game and puzzle designer and escape room expert. I am going to call her an expert. Um, That's not how she introduced herself to me, but that's what I'm saying. Uh, And um, I already hinted at this today. We're going to talk more about cultural bias in puzzle design. Um, And so to just kind of kick that off, I mean, to me, it seems a little obvious, right? That that if you live in a culture, there's going to be biases that get reflected in the things that you're designing. But um, when I started looking for it, I really didn't see a lot out there about it other than kind of what Shannon's written. So, so Shannon, um, can you just talk about sort of like, I guess, how did you get started with that kind of research? Like what, what brought you into that? So I was hired um, at Wilfrid Laurier University specifically for this project, investigating cultural bias in escape rooms. And my job was basically sponsored by Red Bull. And the reason for that, you mentioned at the beginning Mm -hmm. that (laughs) I was on the design team for the Red Bull Escape Room World Championships. And this was my job is basically to make sure that as much cultural bias was eliminated as possible because these championships have teams from over 20 different countries, um, many of whom do not have English as a first language, some of whom don't speak English at all and have all different backgrounds and perspectives. So in the first uh, world championship that they held in 2017, there were a lot of problems around cultural bias. They had puzzles in English. They had symbols that meant exactly the opposite in one culture as they did in North America. They had all kinds of 
references that some teams were at a severe disadvantage because they didn't understand the North American context for those references, because the design team was all based in North America. Um, so for the 2019 World Championship, Red Bull paid to have me come on to try and eliminate those problems, to make it a more fair game. Mm -hmm. um, and so the first step of that was proving, of course, academia, prove that it is a problem, prove that cultural bias exists. Mm -hmm. So I surveyed a whole bunch of escape room enthusiasts, all of whom had played games in multiple countries yeah. and asked them about their experiences of cultural bias and put together a study on that. So yeah, that's how it all started was because <laughs> Red Bull wanted to make a better game. <laughs> I mean, what what better reason could there be to start researching something like that, right? We always want our games to be better and better, or at least we should. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so what so what kind of cultural biases were you seeing? Like, what, give some examples, I guess. What do you see when you look for that? Yeah, so um, I ended up um, dividing all the experiences that were reported to me into five different categories. Mm -hmm. um, and this is these were categories were kind of based on other sociocultural models of, okay. you know, evaluating culture and stuff, except specialized for escape rooms, because there's there's one category in particular that is not necessary in other models, but is mm -hmm. necessary when you're talking puzzles. So the five categories are language, symbols, norms, artifacts and knowledge. Okay. Um, so those are like the five kind of categories that all these different experiences of cultural bias kind of broke down into. Mm -hmm. So like language is pretty obvious, whether it's written or spoken language. Um, symbols, again, you know, like for an exit sign or, you know, a flame mm -hmm. that represents fire, those kind of symbols, even um, green means go and red means stop is yeah. a symbol. Uh, norms are like standards of behavior. Mm -hmm. So some things like um, in my household, in Canada in general, taking your shoes off at the door of someone's house is a common norm. I know mm -hmm. in some places in the US, that's not a common norm. Mm -hmm. yep. So if you had a puzzle around that, and there is a game or was a game in Japan that had a puzzle around that, where you had to take your shoes off at the door, and that was part of the puzzle. Um, so that is something, norms like that are things you encounter in escape rooms. Um, and artifacts, that is a huge range of cultural bias. So games count in there. Mm -hmm. um, a player told me about an escape room where you needed to know how to play snake. You know, that little game that used to be on old cell phones where all you did, oh, like you, the, the pixel. snake. Yes, yeah, the pixel game. It just game. gets longer and longer. Yeah, and you can't hit the tail. So there was a puzzle in an escape room in Australia that required you to beat a game of snake. And the players that I were talking to were not from Australia and had, did not have cell phones growing up and had no idea how to play this game and they wouldn't even give them instructions for it. <laughs> oh my gosh. So yeah, even things um, like knowing how to use a rotary dial phone. Um, that mm -hmm. is an artifact that teenagers nowadays may have never encountered. Um, definitely so, had to do those in escape rooms. Yep. <laughs> right. And so, you know, those are, that is a cultural bias. Um, knowledge was the new one that you don't find in other models, mm -hmm. but that particularly applies to escape rooms. So things like 
um, common knowledge, like what were you taught in school that you assume everyone should know, or mm -hmm. trivia, um, like, so that's trivia or riddles. Those are the two categories, trivia and riddles, mm -hmm. um, because riddles, um, I had a, a quote that made it into one of the articles is that you're not solving riddles, you're remembering them. Uh, like when they talk about the riddle of the Sphinx, you're not figuring it out. You just know what the answer is because you've heard it before right. or like, exactly. that's the you first know, one that comes to mind for me. That interesting. You know, yeah. the, the different things like what has four legs in the morning and two legs in the afternoon and three mm -hmm. legs in the evening. And it's like, yes, well, I've heard that before. So I know the answer, but if you've never heard that riddle before, it's pretty impossible to just come up with that on the spot when you have a one hour time limit. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, those are all cultural bias. You either know it or you don't, you know, like what are the names of the planets in the solar system? That's trivia. Or what, um, what actor starred in this particular movie? Well, if you've never heard of that movie or seen it, how are you supposed to know? Right, right. Oh, and I, if so. I had seen it, I still wouldn't know because I can't remember actors' <laughs> names for anything, but yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So yeah, so those were the categories of cultural bias that we ended up dividing everything into and looking at. Um, and it's really interesting because that has, when players encounter cultural bias in a game, it really has a significant impact on their enjoyment of a game. Yes. So, you know, you can like lose the game flow. So all of a sudden you're not immersed anymore. You're like, wait, what's this? How does this match the setting and I don't know it. So you're done. Like mm -hmm, you just mm -hmm. can't move on or you lose confidence in the game design. So you're kind of like, and this happens all the time with enthusiasts that I know they're always <laughs> like, yeah, I don't expect that game designers are actually good. So oh. we, <laughs> that is a direct quote from a friend of mine. I will not call out his name, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he mentioned even just last week i think something about he doesn't actually expect game designers to be good for escape rooms because a lot of them are very local um mm -hmm. you know and passion projects yeah. and so when he encounters something that you can't solve or a puzzle that doesn't seem quite right he loses confidence in the game design so all of a sudden now you're questioning every single thing after that in the game like is this what the designer meant or am i supposed to look for something something else is this something i'm just supposed to know mm -hmm. you know so there's that and then um, sometimes it can work the opposite way too where if you know something but the designer expects you to have to reference something else in the room or find another piece yep. to finish the puzzle. If you already know it, then you're just going to bypass that puzzle altogether with the answer. Yeah, um, I did that. I, I was doing a, it was a horror themed escape room and it had a puzzle that was like super, super similar to one that I'd done previously. And I accidentally skipped like a whole bunch of stuff. Like I didn't even realize I was doing it. So you say that and I'm just like, yep. Yep. <laughs> and yeah, we didn't so that we didn't even we didn't win the escape room either because that threw off our flow so bad that we like had to get help to get back into like where we were even supposed to be it was yep. nuts like oh i can i can see how that would go really badly <laughs> yeah and the, none of these are necessarily a poorly designed room like the room mm -hmm. can still be really good it's just these are things that designers have to be aware of that their experience isn't universal. 
And so other people are coming from different backgrounds. And if you want those people as clients and customers, then maybe you should make sure they're able to solve the game. Sometimes Sometimes that's as easy as just making sure your game master is aware of that and is there with hints for people who are having problems. Like sometimes that can fix it. Yeah. I was just going to ask you, I mean, what do you, so I imagine that you, you take some time, you go through the puzzles and you sort of like look for those areas of bias, right? Like that would be step one, Mm -hmm. just to understand it. But then what do you do about it? That's. (laughs) Yeah. So actually the designer looking through puzzles isn't going to do much good because Mm -hmm. they know that information, right? Like the, thing you want to do is get people to test it for you. So beta test it, play test it. Um, And you can do puzzles individually. And then you have to also test the room as a whole multiple times Mm -hmm. and get as big a variety of people as you can to play test it. Like get people from different socioeconomic, economic backgrounds, people of different ages, people from different countries, if you can, um, all kinds of different backgrounds, because the more you get it, play tested with different groups of people, the more you'll see sore spots and spots that stand out as not quite working. Yeah. Um, But then then solving it, like, yeah, you can, you can eliminate some of these. Like I, I have played escape rooms that have very minimal language. So that's possible. Um, And some of them you can eliminate. Some of them, you might just want to make sure that there is like um, signposting within the room. And Mm -hmm. so signposting in reference to puzzles is making sure that there is clues in the room that direct players to a specific answer. Um, So whether that's, you know, the obvious example of a poster on the wall that tells (laughs) you the information you might need, or it could Mm -hmm. be something as simple as that puzzle where you have to take your shoes off at the door. Maybe there is a shelf by the door where there are shoes stacked up and one space left. Mm -hmm. So that kind of indicates to you, it's, you know, environmental storytelling that, oh, wait, maybe my shoes should go there. Did when you were working on the Red Bull team, did they do that series of like playtesting and stuff too, where they, they tried to bring in people from around the world? Yeah, um, not so much around the world, but because it was designed at a university, the design team was made up of um, some other like puzzle designers and then Mm -hmm. also students from the university. So let me tell you that all the students in the game design program got to test a lot of puzzles because (laughs) (laughs) that was that's what happened. And then there were some puzzles that just didn't end up working and Mm -hmm. had to be replaced with something else. So. Oh, wow. Wow. How, how long did it take to like finalize and design that room? I know this is kind of a tangent. Oh, I'm just curious. For the, for the world championship. <laughs> um, so it wasn't just one room. The way it was set up was there were semifinals where I believe it was, was it three puzzles? So mm-hmm. each puzzle was kind of in a room of its own. So they were single rooms that had like one thing you had to solve to get out. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there were a series of those that players had to go through for the semifinals. And then the fastest team basically got to do the full escape room at the end. And this full room was four different areas, five, five different areas that they got to go through. 
Um, and each area had several different puzzles. So it was kind of a full on escape room. Wow. Oh man. Like, okay. So the students started designing the puzzle, the puzzles summer of 2018, the escape room world championship occurred in, I think April, 2019. And when I say about a year, when I say we were still working on puzzles about a week before the the finals <laughs> happened, I am I'm not lying. <laughs> wow. Oh my God, that'd be so stressful. <laughs> yeah. To be honest, I think so we flew, they were filmed in London, England. Mm-hmm. Um, Scott Nicholson was the head of the design team. So him and I flew to London to mm-hmm. oversee this. Uh and when we walked into the space where they were building out the room um literally like two days before it happened puzzles were being changed in the space because it just didn't work with the space they had oh so no. so it you ha- it's being very very flexible and making wow. changes on the fly and See now I'm yeah. wondering I've done I've done pop-up escape rooms at like conventions where they um they don't have an actual room to put you in but they're basically constructing it with like I don't know curtains on like metal rods and oh. stuff like that you know and like I've done some really really cool ones and I'm just sitting here going like how many of those things did they have to make up on the fly because it didn't work <laughs> like I, I they probably did crazy amounts of testing before they brought it anywhere but oh man I I can't even I can't even imagine that must have been crazy to see that happen. Um, it's a bit nerve wracking, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can imagine. Uh, <laughs> and I, I was I, just I, upset the one puzzle I designed got cut and it involved players being in a falling elevator <gasps> and having to basically like put a broom handle up into the gears to stop the elevator from fall. I was they were like, we can't build that. And I was like, oh, I really want that to happen. That would be so OK. <laughs> terrifying, but also cool. <laughs> like, well, the elevator isn't really falling. It's just shaking yeah. like it's falling. But yeah, but I, I mean, I've done especially like when you've got um, if, when you've got certain kinds of like sound and like you, you said environment design earlier, like when you've got mm-hmm. certain triggers in the environment that are like, like making you feel like anxious and that kind of stuff. Like, oh, I hate like alarm sounds. And I've done games before where they had like an alarm sound that would go off if you did something. And it was like, it scare me every time. And like, <laughs> I, I loved it, but I hated it. <laughs> it was good design, I thought. Um, uh, so, okay. So I kind of want to pick on, you said, um, norms was one of the cultural mm-hmm. biases. I kind of want to pick on that because I think that's something that people, um, if you you don't know what your own norms are usually, right? So how, yeah. I mean, how would you, How could you give an example of how that has come into effect in like escape rooms and maybe how you can work around that? Like, yeah, so, um, one of the players that I talked to for the research mentioned uh, they were, I believe they were American and they did a bunch of rooms in Spain. Mm-hmm. And what you what you often find in escape rooms is that regionally you'll see a lot of the same patterns. So for example, um, like a lot of escape rooms in Texas say may have very similar 
things happening in them just because the owners went around and played all their local escape rooms. <laughs> and so the, you get popular tropes that happen. Mm -hmm. So in Spain, he said, a lot of the rooms involved physical contact. So, you oh. know, you would have an actor in the room who would be playing, for example, like a mob boss and would like be pushing you around and grabbing you and dragging you somewhere. And he said it was a little weird and he, he didn't really have a problem with it, but he said a member of his team really didn't like it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, cause that's physical contact is a little, you don't want a stranger pushing you around, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that was something that was a little strange. Now, Russia, for example, has some phenomenal escape rooms. They go all out. Um, they also have rooms that have very high contact. But in Russia, when you choose, when you go to buy your escape room and book it, you can choose what level of contact that you want. So you can go like oh. no contact or some contact or like extreme. And you can choose what level you want. So that's how they have mitigated that by telling you up front, okay, like crazy things are going to happen in this room. How crazy do you want it to get? Yeah. Yeah. In my head right now, I'm comparing it to like um, haunted houses. There's like haunted yes. houses where you can touch people and haunted houses where you can't. And, and in some places there's legality that plays into that as well. But like um, the first time I heard of, of a haunted house where they, the actors could touch you, I was like, no, no, no. I, yeah. that's not something I want in my life. <laughs> right. And so that's something that, you know, and if a player is going into a game knowing to expect that, it's mm -hmm. a little different because of course, players that don't want that can just avoid that game. Right. Or if you have it set up like a lot of Russian rooms do, you can choose a lower intensity. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen escape rooms where they ask you, um, for like a difficulty level. So like they're, you know, based on your comfort level, do you want this to be really hard? Do you want it to be really easy? Do you want it to be somewhere in between? And I've seen that level of like expectation setting, I guess. Um, yeah, and, and usually that refers to how many puzzles do you get? So they might throw in a couple uh, extra puzzles or make a more difficult version of a puzzle if you choose the higher difficulty. Most times I've seen that that's what it's referred interesting. to. Interesting. And I know um, I know one of the things that they specifically asked about was hints because they were like, if you want an easier experience, we'll give you more hints along the way. But if you don't want that, we're going to make you beg to <laughs> get a hint, basically, um, uh, which I also appreciated because like I don't I don't like when people try to tell me how to solve it when I'm right there. <laughs> I have strong opinions on hinting in games. Let's not get into that. <laughs> oh, no, because I kind of want to hear it. <laughs> All right. In short, I just think that people should get as many hints as they want, as they ask for. Um, I don't think you should be limited to three hints. And I don't think you should make yeah. people beg for hints. I, <laughs> I, if people, and I also don't think that you should hint people along unnecessarily. Um, yeah. you know, give people time to figure it out themselves. And if they get stuck, then they can ask for a hint. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That makes sense. I mean, I, you don't want it to take away from the enjoyment of the game. Right. And if the puzzle exactly. is too much, like, I, I just played through, um, oh God, I went on a really big like room escape video game kick recently and I did the, I did all of the room series. 
all of it. And then I, what was the other one that I did? It was so good. And now I can't think of it. The first game in it is Samsara and I can't think of what the series is. I'm looking it up so that I don't forget. Uh, it's called the Samsara Room and it's like a weird, almost horror-ish uh, game and i think you can play samsara for free but then there's a whole series that comes after it and anyway cubescape that's what it's called i ah. talked my way into the answer anyway the cubescape series i played that whole thing but there were places where i started to feel so frustrated by not being able to solve it and they don't have hints like there is no way to get an in-game hint in any of those you just have to figure it out um and I, so I was using like online walkthroughs and I got really good at like, how do I search just for the next step so that I don't spoil the whole puzzle for myself. But, yeah. but that is something that really detracted from my enjoyment was having to go outside the game to get help because I was that is, that is a problem in a lot of games, like live action escape rooms, also tabletop escape rooms, like the mm. escape room board games and video yeah. games is hints are just as much a part of your game as the puzzles are. Mm -hmm. You know, if a player needs hints, the hints have to be well designed. And yes. I think that for most designers, hints are kind of on a back burner. Hints aren't the most important part. But mm -hmm. for a player, yeah, your hints are very important. You oh, know, incredibly. For, and it's not, there's no shame in taking a hint as a player. Oh my gosh, I take hints all the time in games. If I can't figure, if I can't figure it out in like three minutes, what I'm supposed to do, I'll be like, hint, please. Uh, <laughs> Gotta keep I just it moving. Want, I just want to keep playing. So yeah, yeah. And, but the hints have to be well-written or mm -hmm. well-communicated in some way. Yeah. And they have to actually be helpful. And that's, you know, hints come from good playtesting. Yeah. If you've, is where you see that people have problems in playtesting, you either adjust the puzzles or you make sure the hints help that small minority who can't do it. Yeah, and I and you talked about the escape room board games. I played several of those, and the ones that were my least favorite were the ones where I felt like the hints just didn't match up. And it yes. was like I would get to a certain point, and they had their their. They're kind of weird because it's like a card and you have to flip over the first part of the hint and like, have you already gotten to this part of the puzzle? Okay, here's the second one. And like, th those were the ones that I was playing at least. And it just like, it would, it would expect you to know things that like were not the first thing that I found in that puzzle. And it was just like, <laughs> it was just like very strange. And I, and that was, that was as frustrating for me, like trying to figure out the hints <laughs> as the actual yes. puzzles was. And I was like, ah, <laughs> but, yeah. um, no, no, that makes perfect sense. See, see, you said you didn't, we, should, we shouldn't talk about it. I think we should have talked about it. That was interesting. <laughs> so, um, okay, back, back from that diversion, um, back to these cultural biases. So um, I think what's really interesting that you brought up about the, like the touching, right, in escape rooms, like that's really a consent issue. That's yes. an issue that could be, um, I mean, potentially triggering for people that have like, uh, trauma around something, around being touched or being grabbed by people that they don't know. And I'm really curious to get your perspective on on like that angle of like, how does consent tie into these cultural biases? Yeah, well, I think like consent is so important in so many games, you know, in board games, you can look at the cover of a game or read the back of the box and kind of get an idea of what you're in for, right? Like there's not mm -hmm. going to be a lot of surprises in board games. But if you're talking like RPGs or LARPs or escape rooms or immersive theater, any of those areas, mm -hmm. you're going to have things come up that players aren't expecting um, if you don't warn for them in advance. And 
that can be tough, you know, like that's something that players should know going into a game. So whether that is on the order page, when they register for their escape room, you can have a drop down menu, even just, you know, this game mm -hmm. will include, um, because, you know, I've played games before. Another issue that sometimes comes up is cold starts in escape room games. Okay. So these are games where you don't get, you don't go into the lobby of the escape room and greet the game master and they make you sign a waiver and mm -hmm. none of that happens. Instead, you're in a parking lot or you're in a mall or you do a secret knock on a door and immediately they answer in character. Um, there's a, there is a game out there where you end up, you actually get kidnapped from a parking lot in a van and taken to the location of the escape room. There's a game that I did where you had to uh, make an appointment at an eye doctor and um, arrive and give them your appointment time and say the code words before you could get into the escape room. And it was not presented like an escape room. It was presented like you are now, you went to this eye doctor's office and you are in there and he's getting you your prescription. So, you know, it's interesting. Uh, that and that's something though that should be warned for. Because mm -hmm. if players don't know to expect that, like getting kidnapped from a parking lot can be pretty traumatic for some oh people gosh. if they don't know to expect that. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I'm thinking the the first room I did that had an actor, like a live actor in it was like a um, serial killer scenario where we'd been like, it wasn't a cold start, like we got the briefing on it or whatever, but um, we had to start out like chained to the wall essentially in this room. Yes. And that was... Um, <laughs> that was something that they made sure that they told us in the room before we like went in and did it. Um, and that's great. It know? was amazing. And I, if I remember correctly, they also, no, they didn't tell us that you had to be chained in the online description, but they did tell you in the room. But online, they told you like in the description of the room itself that this would be, you know, uh, the um the murderer and a serial killer and like you know you've been captured and so they gave you that whole setup so you at least knew the themes yes. <laughs> but you didn't know necessarily the play and i appreciated so much that they told that told us when we got there that um before we even walked into the room like this is what you should expect i mean that was yeah huge. well and that's you said it right out like setting expectations that's what you have to do for these types of games because it's it really, escape rooms are a pretty short experience. You know, it's going to be under an hour and a half in most cases, and mm -hmm. you want players to get the most enjoyment out of it that they can. Like escape rooms are for fun. Yeah, It's a game, you're having fun. And so why <laughs> would you want to spring something on a person that won't be fun for them? Exactly. So, and there's, there's fun ways to do it if, because there are a lot of people out there who don't want to be spoiled. They don't want any information. They just want to go into it cold. And there's ways to do that too. Um, a, so I design puzzles for the Cryptex hunt, which happens every March. Mm -hmm. And um, so that is, it's a puzzle hunt, but it's an easy puzzle hunt. And two years ago, the Cryptex hunt was designing text adventure escape rooms. <gasps> um, and so one of the escape rooms that was designed, and it was actually the intro room for this puzzle hunt was uh, designed by one of the organizers and it was, I forget what the name of it was, but it was about, um, a guy going to find a Christmas gift for his wife. Right. Mm -hmm. That seems 
really like normal and kind of a happy game he designed yeah. it around christmas time <laughs> well let me tell you in the discord people testing it he was getting like sworn at and like in good fun but people were upset with him for this game because of some of the things that happened in the game were very triggering not necessarily in not in a like abusive way or anything like that mm -hmm. but there were themes to the game that when they came out of nowhere you were like what just happened like it became mm -hmm. a very emotional experience and so when he put it in the puzzle hunt mm -hmm. he had a drop down menu where on the page for that game where it said if you know warnings these are content warnings for this game and so it dropped down and it would give you some of the content warnings now that takes some of the surprise out of uh -huh. the game and what happens in it but for people that need those and need to know what's coming up and what to expect it's you know it, that could be what they need to even play the game um, and yeah. if you think about it, movies, every single movie has content warnings at the beginning, mm -hmm. you know, whether that's violence or sexuality or gore or whatever, you know, there are warnings at the start of movies. So why don't games have that too? Yeah. And I mean, I think some, some games in like the video game realm have started doing some of that. Um, yeah. But then, but that, I mean, like the first example that comes to mind that failed to do this was The Last of Us Part Two, which is one oh. of my favorite games of all time. I see you are aware of it. <laughs> anyway, <Yes. laughs> but uh, yeah, so like that was a game that to me, like I, I knew it was gonna be a violent, gory game because it's The Last of Us and I'd played the first one, but they didn't have any content warnings for the type of, the very particular type of violence that you were going to see and i and th and that was one of the big responses to that game was that you get to a certain point and a lot of people just put it down because the emotional trauma of continuing mm -hmm. to play it was too much and and i mean totally true i mean i it's an emotional meat grinder but like <laughs> a warning would have been nice for some of that you know and even yeah. as somebody who i would have i i continued to play the game and i finished it and i played it twice now but like it still would have been nice to have a little warning. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, and even beyond those type of content warnings, like, especially with escape rooms, because they're things that are there in person, right? Someone yeah. is literally in that environment and maybe interacting with actors. And maybe there are some people who won't play games that have actors in them because they just don't want that kind of interaction with another person. Yeah. And that's perfectly fine. So maybe they should know that there are actors in a game. I was in a game once that um, their surprise shootout um <laughs> between <laughs> rival criminals um, in the middle of the game. And so like everyone's ducking down as they're like, shooting fake guns at each other um oh my gosh that was not warned for but like you could almost see it coming in the acting but it was still kind of surprising yeah um the actors in that game in particular did a very very good job with it in making sure that people were okay but uh yeah yeah, yeah that's a t that's a, a tough balance between wanting surprise and having reasonable expectations right right <laughs> yeah oh man that's so interesting yeah. um, even like that those kind of content warnings also go for not just for emotional issues or those kind of things like norms mm -hmm. but actual accessibility yeah. um 
because, you know, if a room is going to be low light, well, maybe people with vision problems should know to bring a flashlight. Or Mm -hmm. if, you know, there's going to be um, crawling or climbing or any kind of movement that someone with mobility issues won't be able to handle. Uh, All kinds of stuff like that. People who are allergic to scents, a lot of escape rooms will use scents for environmental storytelling and to set Mm -hmm. the scene. You know, there's a lot of stuff like that that really should be on the, you know, the page when you go to order the game, because Mm -hmm. who knows, like you may choose not to do a game or you may choose to do it if you find out that there's going to be a lot of activity and crawling and jumping. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I know I'm sitting here like, oh, really physical game to me sounds like a lot of fun, but like I, there are certain friends that I like playing escape room games with where that would be a huge issue and yeah. and that i wouldn't be able to take them and like that's not i don't know yeah. that, doesn't, that doesn't feel good <laughs> i played a game once where you had to walk on a rope over top of a lava pit um <sighs> and you know it was only about a foot off the ground so if you fell not a big deal and they had sand underneath yeah uh, but still and you could just have walked it if you wanted to but that was between two sections of a game is having to walk on a rope over a lava pit <laughs> and, and it was super fun for me but like anyone with mobility or balance issues oh, yeah. probably would have struggled with that. And then it's disappointing that even if there's ways around it, like, well, you didn't get to experience the full game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and usually like when you've signed up for a game, like you can't refund it because you find out at the last minute, oh, I can't do these puzzles or whatever, you know, like that's, that's yep. not part of the model. You're paying for that experience and you're just missing out on the experience that you paid for. And that's, not fun for anyone. <laughs> no, exactly. No. Oh man. Uh, what other? I mean, what other accessibility considerations are important when you're talking escape rooms? I mean, to me, that's that's also, in a way, a cultural bias. Like, I don't know if you'd lump them in sort of together, but for me, it's like, as somebody who is, um, I'm able-bodied. That's a very different set of expectations for how I can interact with something, and it can be really hard to step outside of that. Um, to look at it from that other perspective. So like what what kind of considerations or advice would you, you give for that? Yeah, so one of the big ones is colorblindness. Yes. Um, that's a huge portion of the population um, mm-hmm. that I talked to one team and they played a game where you needed to recognize uh, like opposite colors, complementary colors. Uh-huh. And I think it was like they said three out of their four team members were colorblind. Oh, so and and so it was just like really difficult. Um, also, laser mazes, they'll have things like don't touch the red lasers, only only hit the green. And it's mm-hmm. like uh, if you're colorblind, that's really hard. <laughs> yeah, I did. A, I did an escape room. <laughs> you're saying that I did an escape room with my executive producer who is colorblind and he um, there were some puzzles that we had to like switch off because he was like, I'm not going to be able to tell you like what I'm seeing in a way that is going to help you solve this puzzle. And like, that's, um, and I mean, that's something that we need to accommodate for because we knew that, but it was, uh, think about doing it on the fly in a room full of strangers potentially, because a lot of times you do just get thrown in with whoever, like that's a different kind of challenge for sure. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, like I said, like mobility vision issues Mm -hmm. is a, big one. So many escape rooms are in low light for atmosphere. And that's 
not necessarily practical for everyone, especially mm -hmm. people getting older, you know, or if you wear glasses or astigmatism. Exactly. Astigmatism is huge. I've got pretty bad astigmatism. And so I, um, I can't even do like dark mode on computer screens because I can't read the text gets so blurry. Oh. And, and so like sometimes, yes, in those escape yeah. rooms, the first thing I do is I look for a light source. And if I really can't find one, I'll get out my phone. Yes. <laughs> like, fuck it. You know I'm going to do it. <laughs> yep. And that's, that's just practical. You do what you got to do to have fun with it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, hearing issues. Uh, yeah. a lot of times there's auditory puzzles where you have to be able to interpret what someone's saying to you. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, you know, that's a lot of how good is the equipment? You know, do they have an accent that's different from yours? Um, there's those cultural bias issues, but also can you even hear it? Yeah. You know, is the speaker only in one corner of the room and you're too far away that you can't quite catch everything? Mm -hmm. um, or if you're deaf, I mean- Yes, exactly. If you're hard of hearing at all. You, you can't. <laughs> if they don't have an interpreter or some other like visual alternative to that, mm -hmm. like, yeah, you just can't even participate. Yep. Um, people with allergies, you know, maybe you've got flowers in the room or you're piping a scent like fragrance allergies are really common. Mm -hmm. I have fragrance yeah. allergies. So if there's any kind of like musk scent or perfume or anything, I will have an asthma attack and be not able to stay <sighs> in that room. Um, there's, there's lots of things like that. And it's, it's hard, right? Because designers can't like, they don't have to accommodate for all of these things. You know, mm -hmm. you have an idea in your head, you want that game out there, but it's things to be aware of, right? And be aware that you're cutting off part of your customer base mm -hmm. by, you know, keeping those things in or by not including something that would help someone like a light source. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and I, I think what you're, what I'm really putting together from what you're saying is like, you have to have a good understanding of what that sort of like, I guess like status quo is for you to even be able to change it. So you have to know, you know, what should I be paying attention to? What is, what are those elements of it? What am I putting out there? And then what can I do that is different from that <laughs> to maybe be more inclusive? Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, it's, it's tough because, you know, I still make puzzles that, people who are colorblind might have problems with. And there's ways to fix that, right? Like mm -hmm. if you're using colors, have each color be a different symbol too, yes. you know, or, or have a sound associated with a particular color. You know, it depends on how your puzzle is set up. There are ways to get around those things and accommodate for that, especially like colorblindness is something I harp on because <laughs> my goodness, it's so common. Like, yes. how are we not accommodating for that? I know. I, I come from like a design, like a visual design background. And like, that is one of the things that to me just blows my mind that people don't even take that into consideration. Like I was, I was on Facebook look, and um, I got like an ad that had a bunch of like social media ad example or like graphic examples or whatever. And I don't have colorblindness, but there was one example that the contrast was so low, I was having a hard time reading it. And I was like, so of course I immediately comment on it. And I'm getting there, my little Facebook keyboard warrior. And I'm just like, Hey, don't do that. <laughs> no, but I mean, I took the opportunity to educate them and, and, um, and the, the designer was really responsive to it. But like, that's something that to me, there's all these tools out there for solving that problem for colorblindness in particular. Um, there's, mm -hmm 
I use, if I'm looking at color palettes and I'm trying to see if there's enough contrast and stuff between it, there's um, coolers, C-O-O-L-O-R-S. I use them all the time because they've got a little toggle where you can switch it between like, I don't know, a whole bunch of different kinds of color blindness to see what it looks like through a filter from those other eyes. And like, that's the only way for me to be able to experience what that looks like for them. But those tools are out there. So yeah, use them. And, <laughs> and I've seen a lot of game designers and game publishers do the exact same thing, put up their color palettes. Here are our five colors of meeples. Mm -hmm. You know, we've put them through these filters, but can people tell us, does this work? You know, because you end up with some really cool colors, actually, by doing it that way, instead of the standard just red, green, yellow, blue. Yes. Yeah. I actually now I'm sitting here like I kind of want to take all the uh, the really unique color palettes that I see in board games and I'm just going to start taking pictures of them and running them through those filters and see like <laughs> what happens. Um, but I, I mean, I play like my uh, my partner's mother who we love to play board games with her. She is very colorblind. And so like we tried to play Ticket to Ride with her. And that is one of the board games where they did do a, a shape, but it's not very noticeable. Yeah, like, it's not super obvious. Yeah. So we were trying to um, show that to her, but she was getting frustrated because she just couldn't see it. It wasn't enough of a difference in the shape. It wasn't enough contrast in the different colors. And of course, that's a color based board game. You have to match your train cars based on colors. So like that wasn't so, you know, it wasn't fun for us. We tried it a couple of times and it stopped being fun because it wasn't accessible mm -hmm. enough for everyone in our party. And um, yeah, so I, I think it's huge. I think it's huge, uh, especially advocating for colorblindness because that is something that is so easy to fix. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I mean, I think this has been a great conversation and, and actually I feel like it's time to kind of wrap it up. Um, so I just kind of want to end and by asking you, you know, what is, what is your final thought on like, either something that you want done or a message that you want to get out there um, to whoever's listening today. Okay, so we were just talking about it, which is kind of just my overall feeling on games is that games are meant to be fun. Mm -hmm. You know, they're meant you want if you're designing games, you want your players to have fun and be entertained. That is the whole purpose of games. If they're not having fun, why would they play? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and just because you're making your games fun and for entertainment doesn't mean you can't still have critical analysis of them, right? There's mm -hmm. always ways to improve. No one has designed the perfect game mm -hmm. um, that appeals to absolutely everyone. So, you know, and a particular game doesn't have to be fun for everyone, mm -hmm. but you should still look at your market like who's your audience for that game and what potential changes are there that you can make to your game to make it more fun for a wider audience yeah yeah i think that's huge and that's something that like it, it, the whole topic of like inclusivity and that kind of stuff really is a, is accounting for that right you want everyone to be able or as many people as possible to be able to play your game i've had a guest who just said that recently and mm -hmm. it was um, I mean, that's so powerful. That's yeah. so powerful. And, and honestly, even beyond inclusivity, it's it's good for your business. Like it's just good business sense to mm -hmm. have as many customers as possible buy your product. So exactly. like, if you wanna make money, make sure everyone can play it and everyone feels welcome at your table. 
Yes, I love that. I love that. The the, the bottom line of the business. <laughs> no, but it's true. There's a lot of studies out there that have shown that um, inclusivity, diversity, all of those elements really are just good for the bottom line, period. And yep, yep that's so there true. You know. I love that you brought that up. <laughs> like you don't have to be a social justice warrior to care about inclusivity. You can just be a capitalist. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Well, there's a whole new market listening to my show now. <laughs> no, that's a fantastic point. Um, Shannon, thank you so much. This has been so much fun for me. And I'm so, like I said, I'm so glad I finally got to talk about escape rooms on my show. I've been wanting to since season one. So <laughs> thank you so much. Um, this has been so much fun. And um, I hope we can stay in touch. Yeah, well, I'm so glad to meet you. And this has been fun for me too. I love talking escape rooms. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I'll be back again soon with another episode. You can find episodes of Replay and all other Victor Media Group podcasts at victormediagroup.co. Replay is a VMG original and is created, hosted, and produced by Clara Mount. The show's executive produced by J.B. Adams and Gerard Mitchell with sound design by Anna Hughes and original music by Bison. It's the mission of Victor Media Group to make the world a better place by making ourselves better people. If you like this show, follow Victor Media Group on your favorite social channels and check out Bison's other tunes on Spotify, Bandcamp, and SoundCloud. Extra special thanks to all my listeners for hanging out with us today. Keep on playing and remember, you're always welcome at this game table.